Amen. It's good to be here. Last, uh, I've been out a couple weeks, though many of you are familiar with that. Last week, Kevin finished up the second big section of the Gospel of John on pre- preaching on the world's greatest tragedy. Today, I get the privilege of preaching on the world's greatest comeback victory. And, uh, you know, we've heard that word comeback used a lot over the last year. Uh, Beginning about a year ago, uh, I heard a lot of questions like, when are we going to be able to come back? When when can we come back to normal? When are things going to come back so that we can come back to school or come back to church? Or uh, one of my favorites was, when's toilet paper going to come back? Uh, I hope it does before I run out. Uh, In the recent months, those those questions have gotten a little bit more serious. Is our nation going to be able to come back from this? Are those businesses that are closed down going to be able to come back from months of being shut? Is our economy going to be able to come back? Are our jobs going to be able to come back? So there's some, some very challenging questions that we have faced. And when I hear that term comeback, now some of, the, some of y'all are going to have to just Buckle in and bear with me for a little bit, because when I hear the phrase a comeback or the greatest comeback, one of the first places that my mind goes is to sports analogies. I remember as a young man, a young pastor at May, I I was a big cowboy fan. Uh, That has waned in recent years for various reasons. I mean, I still am to some extent, but... But, you know, in 1992, the Cowboys were finally getting on a roll. They had a great team. It looked like they had a chance to head toward the Super Bowl. Well, there was another Texas team that also had a great team that year and looked like they had a chance to go to the Super Bowl. And I thought, man, how awesome would that be to see the Dallas Cowboys and the Houston Oilers hook up in the Super Bowl? So that first playoff game, I was very interested to see how Houston did. And Houston came out on that Sunday uh, right after lunch, and they blew the doors out. They, they came out at halftime, had a 28-3 lead in the first playoff game against the Buffalo Bills. The announcers at halftime were saying, man, Buffalo's got to do something quick. They'll get the ball first when they come out of the second, in the second half and the third quarter. They're going to have to do something. Well, they did. They threw an interception that Houston returned 57 yards for another touchdown. So quickly into the third quarter, the Houston Oilers were up 35-3. to I walked away from the TV. It's over with, right? Houston's got this one easily. They've got it. The game's over. No, it wasn't. Buffalo mounted one of the greatest comebacks in NFL history, tying the game 38-38, to only to defeat the Houston Oilers in overtime in my dream of the Cowboys and the Oilers playing in the Super Bowl had been squashed. Now, that may be a great comeback, but it hardly qualifies for the greatest comeback in world history. You know, for one reason, it's, it's two small market teams relatively. Houston was considered a small market team back then. Buffalo was even smaller. And, you know, it really only impacted the fans from Houston and, and from Buffalo. And so, I, I would argue that a greater comeback in sports history uh, took place over a series of games. It wasn't just one game, but two historic titans of Major League Baseball were to collide. One of those teams was the Boston Red Sox. They had been under a curse. The curse of the Bambino is called since 1918 when they traded away to the New York Yankees, Babe Ruth, one of the greatest and most historic storied players of all time. 
They traded him away, and they had not won a World Series since 1918. They'd gotten close a few times. And in 2004, they were in the American League Championship Series fighting against the New York Yankees. And the Yankees had already gone up three games to none. It was over. There's no way. No team has ever come back from a 3-0 deficit to win four straight games. And certainly they couldn't do it against the vaunted Yankees, right? In game four, they were already down by two runs. When Boston came back and scored three, they took the lead, three to two. The very next inning, New York got back in the lead. They go into the eighth inning, and New York is going to drive the nail in the Red Sox coffin. They bring on Mario Rivera, the greatest closer of all time of baseball history. He pitches a great eighth inning, first batter in the ninth inning, though he walks the first batter. The guy steals second, comes home on a double, and they tie the game in the bottom of the ninth. Now, it wasn't over yet. The Red Sox had to take it to 12 innings before they finally beat the Yankees. And then the next game, now they're down three games. Well, they still got to win three games in a row. No way, right? The next game goes to 14 innings in Boston. But now they still have to go to New York and beat New York two games in a row in their home stadium. And they did. The, the, the Boston Red Sox came back. They won those four games in a row to close out the American League Championship Series. In the next four games, won four more in a row to put away the St. Louis Cardinals. I'm sorry, Stephen. Uh, swept them in the World Series to finally break the curse of the Bambino. Now, I think that that is probably one of the greatest comeback stories in baseball history. But bear with me for a moment because, see, it's still just a game. And I think for something to qualify as the greatest comeback in world history, it needs to have three components. It needs to have someone that has come from the very depths, as low as low can get. And they will have had to arise to the greatest heights to get as high as anyone could rise. And they, they would have had to have the most, for it to be the world's greatest historic comeback victory, this comeback will have had to touch the most lives with the most impact. Today, today, we celebrate the world's greatest comeback in all of history. Because the resurrection, amen, yes, the resurrection of Jesus meets all of those qualifications. So we're gonna look at a couple passages in the Gospel of John. We're gonna be in John chapter 19 to begin with. The scripture says that, that Jesus, after this, when Jesus knew that everything was finished as he hangs on the cross, that scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there. So they fixed a sponge of sour wine on a hyssop branch and they held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Since it was the preparation day, the Jews didn't want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a special day. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and their bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the, the, the man on the cross on one side of Jesus and on the other who was crucified with him. And when they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. 
Jesus was dead. I want you to hear this. Because Jesus was not just asleep. Jesus was not just in a coma. Jesus was dead. Jesus was as dead as dead could be. These professional soldiers whose business was, their job was to make sure that somebody was dead. When they came to Jesus, they, they, they came to break the legs of the, the soldier that was crucified on Jesus' right and, and to break the legs of the soldier that was crucified on Jesus' le left because they still had a little bit of life left in them. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that Jesus was dead. And just to make certain that Jesus was dead, feeling that they didn't need to break his legs, they took a, that Roman spear and they shoved it up through his abdomen, into his side, through his diaphragm until blood and water flowed out. Doctors will tell you that indicates that the heart had burst wide open. Jesus was dead. He had gone to the lowest of lows that you can go. He had no life left in him. But not only was he dead, he had died this horrible, excruciating death. In, in Philippians chapter 2, the scripture says that he died at death of crucifixion. Well, first, he had taken the beating of the cat of nine tails where his, his flesh was lip, literally stripped from his body. The skin was torn off. The, the muscles inside the back would have been ripped clean. The prophecy of Psalm 22 came true that you could count his bones. You could see his organs. He'd been brutally tortured. Spikes driven in his wrist, in his feet. A nail of crown of thorns driven into his brow. His beard literally ripped from his face. As he staggered up the mountain carrying the cross, then to suffer and die, he was so beaten, he was so worn out, he didn't even last as long as the two criminals crucified with him. He was dead. And to make sure these professional killers, these men who were trained to kill people and to make sure he was dead, put that spear through his side. There's no question about it. Jesus was dead. Ephesians chapter 4 says that while he was dead, which would have taken place Friday and into Saturday, he actually descended into the depths of the earth. Jesus went from, from being the Son of God, seated at the right hand of the Father, to walk among us, to take on our sin, to take that horrible beating, and then to die, to be wrapped in linen cloths and buried in a borrowed tomb and descend into the depths of the earth. You cannot get any lower than what Jesus got. Yes, the Red Sox were behind three games to none, and it looked like it was all over. The, the Oilers were ahead, 35 to 3. It looks like the Bills were in their proverbial coffin. Jesus was dead. It was over. The clock had run out. Time had ended. It had expired. He was dead until three days later. Three days later, the Scripture says, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. And so she went running to Simon Peter, to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out, headed for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. 
Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths there. The wrapping that had been around his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first then also went in and saw and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it you're seeking? Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him. I'll take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Ramoni, which means teacher, don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Well, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he told her. Jesus, three days later, rolled back the stone and came up out of the grave. He went from being as dead as dead can be, descending into the depths of the earth, to standing up, rolling back the stone, resurrected and alive. That is a great comeback. But Jesus is not even going to stay there. He tells Mary, not only had he come up out of the grave alive, come back from the dead, but he was going to ascend back to his Father in heaven. So when you talk about if a comeback requires going from the lowest place to the highest place against insurmountable odds, that's exactly what happened here. Jesus went from the grave, from the, from the pits of the earth, from the bowels of the earth to be resurrected and then ascend to glory, to be seated at the right hand of his Father where he is right now. Hebrews chapter 1 is a beautiful passage of scripture. It says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful hand. And hear this, after, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. He became superior to the angels just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus died a horrible, excruciating death, and rose to an incredible victory, to a place higher. In fact, Scripture says that he is seated in the heavens above the heavens. He's outside of the heavens. All of this creation is his that he made. He resides in some place higher, farther above, more glorious than even everything that we see. See, without his resurrection, without his comeback, Sin will have defeated us. But because of the resurrection, sin is defeated. Without the resurrection, death is the end of hope. When we lay a loved one in the grave, it's over. 
But because of Jesus' resurrection, life is victorious over the grave and over death. Without the resurrection, when someone dies, when our loved one passes, they are gone forever. Because Jesus rose, love can last forever. Without the resurrection, without the cross, Jesus shedding his blood for us, dying and him rising again, you and I will get what we deserve. A lot of times you hear people, just give me what I deserve. You don't want what you deserve. The scripture says what we deserve because of our sin is death. Without the resurrection and the cross, we get what we deserve. With the resurrection, grace is our reward. The resurrection of Jesus matters. Life replaced death. Victory replaced defeat. Hope replaced hopelessness. And grace overcame and replaced our punishment. That is the greatest comeback from the, from the lowest of lows to the highest of highs. And the good news is you and I can participate in that. You remember the third qualification I said if something was going to be history's greatest comeback story, it had to involve more than a small franchise. It had to involve more than a sports team or one or two people or 10 or 12 people or a few hundred people. It had to involve the maximum number of people with the maximum benefit, the maximum effect when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, that comeback offered an opportunity for every single person who has ever lived on this earth from the beginning of creation, from Adam and Eve, until God gets done making us. Scripture says in John three sixteen, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his one and only son, so that everyone Whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God is offering a gift through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, through this incredible setback and comeback, that every single person who would believe in him and put their faith and trust in him could, could be moved from death to life. Paul says you can be transferred from the domain of darkness into his glorious light. Every single human being can be involved in, impacted by, connected to the resurrection of Jesus. That's why this is history's greatest comeback story. Because it's not just a comeback story that affects one man or, or one culture or one generation or one, a group of, of, of one type of people of one skin color. This is a comeback. This is a story that affects every single human being throughout the history of the world. If you put your faith and trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can be connected to his victory. You can celebrate at that party. That's why this is the world's greatest comeback that we talk about. But there's still more in there. There's still more. Today, we can celebrate the resurrection of Christ. We can celebrate the fact that he rose up out of the grave. But when I hear that word come back, there's one more event that I think of. <laughs> Jesus isn't done yet. He's coming back. He's going to return. Because he rose bodily, physically, alive, and ascended to the, to the right hand of the Father, he told us that that's not the end. 
In John chapter 14, this is the very beginning of the last night of Jesus' life. Beginning next week, I'll put in a plug, we're going to begin our study of that third big segment of the Gospel of John. It's called A Dark Night in Jesus' Words. It's going to go from John chapter, th- John chapter 13 all the way until he's arrested and taken to be crucified. All involves the last day of Jesus' life. And that's what we're going to be studying over the next few weeks. And so John chapter 14, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. He's getting ready to transition from the upper room and move his disciples toward the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to be arrested. It's already dark. It's already night. The end is already looming. And the disciples know it. And they're starting to get worried about it. And he knows that their hearts are beginning to be torn, and, and, and they don't know exactly what's going on. They've, they've heard him say some really strange things at the Lord's Supper. And so Jesus tells them in John chapter 14, and this is the beginning of three chapters of Jesus' teaching, but he begins with these words, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. The good news is the comeback story is not over. Jesus rose up out of the grave victorious, ascended to the right hand of the Father, but he's coming back for you and me, for every single person who has put their faith in his death on the cross, in his resurrection from the grave, and trusted your life into his hands, you will celebrate that comeback with him. I'm reminded when I go back to my sports analogies, after every great world victory, whether it's the World Series or the Super Bowl or whatever it happens to be, the team will come back and it will celebrate with their fans who have connected with them. There's usually a big parade. There's a giant party. The whole city shuts down for a day and takes a special time to celebrate. If you think that what took place in Boston in 2004 is a great celebration of that victory, that comeback from almost a century of loss, That doesn't even compare to what the party's going to be when every single person who was dead in their sin and has been resurrected by Christ celebrates on that day. That's going to be the great comeback celebration. That's going to be the historic party of all times. There's going to be a feast. There's going to be worship. I posted this on Facebook yesterday. I'm going to get to stand next to Katie my daughter who passed away before she turned 15. I'm going to get to stand next to her and worship the Jesus who saved us both. The Jesus who shed his blood on the cross and rose up out of the grave. We'll get to celebrate on that day. That is the greatest comeback story. But just like in those sports analogies, there are winners and there are losers. Houston wasn't celebrating the great comeback of 1992. The Yankees weren't celebrating the great comeback in 2004 of the Boston Red Sox. Only those who were connected to that particular team were celebrating. In fact, all the way back in the Old Testament, the book of Amos, Amos says, some of you are looking forward to the day of the Lord because you think it's going to be a great day. But for you, it's going to be like you fled the lion and you leaned up against the wall and you got bitten by the snake. You think that that's going to be a day of life for you. 
but it's going to be a day of death for you. Just as in every great comeback in history, there's winners and there's losers, there's going to come a day when some who think, who think that they look forward to that day are going to be sorely disappointed. Jesus said there's going to be some here who are going to come up to me and say, Lord, we did this for you and we did that for you. And he's going to have to say, he said, I'm going to look at them and say, I'm sorry, I never knew you. Depart from me. He made it clear at the end of the John Fort, or at the, at the end of this passage in John 14, just a few verses past what I read in verse six, Jesus said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me." Hear that. Jesus didn't say that because Jesus was being exclusive. Jesus had already thrown the gates of heaven open wide to all who would believe. Regardless of skin color, regardless of culture, regardless of of your appointment in history, of your time to be born and your time to die, the gates have been thrust open. Everyone who believes in me can have eternal life. But only those who put their faith and trust in me will have eternal life. It is, Christianity is the most inclusive, but also the most exclusive religion or, or, or faith of all of history, because only those who put their faith and trust in Jesus will be saved. The apostle Peter in his message in Jerusalem during Pentecost, when people cried out, how then, what should we be saved? What should we do? And Jesus, Peter said, put your faith in Jesus, repent and be baptized. There's no other name under heaven by which man might be saved. Jesus is the one and only way. But for those who are in Christ, folks, this is not the end. The story isn't over. The great victory has been won, but the celebration is still ahead. Are you ready to celebrate on that day? Are you Have you made that that decision? Have you come to a place where you've said, Lord, I need you. I need to be resurrected. I need my sins forgiven. I need you, Jesus. I believe that scripture is true. I confess my sin before you, and I want to repent and follow you because that is the only way by which you can join this team. That's the only way that you'll celebrate on that resurrection day. There will be many who mourn. In fact, Jesus said, more will mourn than will celebrate on that day. There will be many who mourn the coming of Christ because they weren't ready. Are you? Are you ready when he comes back?